Today we are going back to our study through the Gospel of John, picking up where we left off a while back. We are in John chapter 8, and in a moment we'll begin reading there in verse 21. John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. While you're turning there, I'm going to say something that will not be very popular, at least not in this world in which we live today. There are some things in life that are what we call black and white. And when we use that phrase, when we refer to something as being black and white, we're not talking about colors. We're saying that there are two things that are as far apart as can be and the difference between them is clear. For example, a woman is pregnant or she is not. A person is alive or they are dead. In court, a defendant is considered guilty or not guilty. Most people in the world today do not want to think of anything in terms of being black and white. To most people in the world, everything is gray. But the truth is, many things are black and white, according to the Word of God. For example, in the, New, in the Old Testament, there were 42 different kings of Israel and Judah. And did you know that every single time, without exception, at the end of their lives, the Bible says either he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every time. And it's always one or the other. The Bible speaks of good and evil, truth and error, wisdom and foolishness. There are angels, there are demons, there's heaven and there's hell. We see this over and over again. And one of those things that is a black and white subject is the gospel. The gospel, this good news that God sent his only begotten son who came from heaven to earth, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as our substitute for sin, rose again on the third day, ascended back to heaven, and he's coming again. And whosoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life, will be saved by grace through faith alone. That is good news. But the gospel is either true or it is not. It is either the power of God unto salvation or it is not. And there is no third option. There is no in-between. In our scripture this morning, Jesus is doing something that we've seen him do numerous times in our study of John's gospel. He is debating with the Pharisees. Now, this debate stems from something Jesus said earlier in verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Here it is again. There's light and there's darkness. Jesus said someone is either walking in darkness or they have the light of life. And when we come to our text today, when we get to verse 21, Jesus is warning the Pharisees because of their refusal to believe what Jesus said. And he presents them with three pairs of spiritual realities. Three pairs of spiritual realities. 
And you're going to notice in each case, there are two options, two very different options. In each case, it is one or the other. And as we look at these, my hope is that every person here will ask themselves where they stand in light of these pairs of realities. But first of all, we see here two destinies which every person will face. Two destinies which every person will face. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, Jesus said, I'm going away. Where is Jesus going? Six months later, he will die on the cross. He'll be buried. He'll rise again, and he will ascend back to his Father in heaven. Heaven is where he is going in verse 21. But notice, to these Pharisees, he said, I'm going away. You will seek me, but you will die in your sin. Now, this is probably a reference to what happened in AD 70 when the Romans came in and just destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And many of them were seeking the Messiah who would physically save them. But it really is a terrible thought to think that a person might wait too long to seek Jesus. To think that we have a limited number of opportunities and we have a limited amount of time to make an eternal choice. This is why Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Many of these Pharisees will have waited too long. And so Jesus said to them, you will die in your sin. Now, those are some of the saddest words, some of the most tragic words that you will find in all of the word of God. But we have to ask, what does this mean to die, quote, in your sin? According to the Bible, every single person will die in one of two ways in one of two states. One will die in their sin, or one will die in the Lord or in Christ. But to die in your sin means to die with your sins not having been forgiven. It means to die while still under condemnation because you've rejected God's provision for sin. Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It means to go into eternity carrying that sin with you, and sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Habakkuk said, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Revelation 21, speaking of heaven, says, no impure thing will enter that place. Sin cannot exist in God's presence. It would be easier, in fact, to have a picnic on the surface of the sun than it would be for sin to exist in the presence of a holy God. And so there are some who will die, quote, in their sin, but there's another destiny that a person can face, and that is to die in the Lord. To die in the Lord means to die having believed in Christ 
as Savior and Lord. It means that we are dressed in His righteousness and our sins have been nailed to the cross and removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And there's this beautiful statement that is there in the book of Revelation in chapter 14. I love this statement. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Notice, it says blessed. They're blessed. Their labors are finished. Their worries are past. Their pain is gone. And for them, the best is yet to come. That's why they're called blessed. You ask, well, what determines whether or not someone dies in their sin or dies in the Lord? Well, skip down to verse 24. Jesus tells us, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is not holding any punches here, is he? Not once, not twice. Three times he uses this phrase, to die in your sins. It's as if Jesus is pleading with them not to die in their sins. But I want you to notice what Jesus did not say in verse 24. He did not say, unless you are baptized, you will die in your sins. He did not say, unless you are a member of this church or that, you will die in your sins. He did not say, unless you do a mountain of good works, you will die in your sins. Nor did he say, unless you cut some of that bad stuff out of your life, you will die in your sins. No, what he said was, unless you believe, literally, ego I me, that I am, you will die in your sins. And once again, we've seen this numerous times in John's gospel. Jesus is claiming to be the I am. He's claiming to be the son of God. And he is stressing that you must believe that he is who he claims to be. Now, somebody will ask, well, pastor, why is it so important for someone to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the I am? It's important because Jesus, first of all, had to be both God and man in order to reconcile God and man through his death on the cross. But it's also important for a very practical reason. If Jesus was wrong about his own identity, how in the world can we trust anything that he has to say? If he was wrong about who he was, if he didn't get that part right, how can we trust or claim or base our eternity on any single promise that Jesus gave. The truth is, if he's not who he claimed to be, we cannot. And that's why it's important. Yes, it's black and white. He either is who he claimed to be or he is not. He did what he said he would do or he did not. His promises are true or they are not and so we see that to believe in him is to die in the Lord. To not believe in him is to die in your sin. And maybe for some of you, if you died right now, if you were brutally honest with yourself, you would have to admit that I would die in my sins. The good news is that can change today. That great theologian and that great hymn writer, Isaac Watts, years ago, he was contemplating his own death 
And listen to what he said. He said, quote, It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. You know what that is? That's the mindset of someone, and those are the words of someone who knows what it means to die in the Lord. Two destinies that every person will face. Jesus warned that some will die in their sins, but others will die in the Lord. We also see in this passage two kingdoms to which every person will belong. Two kingdoms to which every person will belong. Now go back to verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Now you might be wondering, well, what is that connection between what Jesus had just said? Why would they suggest that Jesus is going to kill himself? Well, if it's not clear, they are mocking Jesus. They are making fun of him. Because these Pharisees had this belief, an erroneous belief, and they taught the people that if a person committed suicide, that person went straight to hell, they said, and to the lowest part of hell. I want to be very clear about something. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. As terrible and tragic as suicide is, the Bible does not teach that that is the unforgivable sin. It just doesn't. But Jesus has just said to the Pharisees, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going, you guys cannot go. And so they responded and said, oh, is that right? Well, if we can't go where you are going, you must be going to hell. That's exactly what they're saying to Jesus in verse 22. And by the way, can you just imagine somebody standing in front of Jesus and saying that about him? Look at verse 23. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Here's the reason why Jesus said they were in danger of dying in their sins. Verse 23, he basically says the same thing twice, just two different ways. Jesus is from above, they're from below. Jesus is not of the world, they are of this world. And that word world, it's so important. It's that Greek word cosmos. It's important because we see it in the New Testament 77 times referring not to the world in the physical sense, but referring to this world in a spiritual sense. You see, cosmos here means people in rebellion against God. Cosmos means the system of this world that is opposed to God and fight against God at every turn and is actually, the Bible teaches, under the control of the devil. Jesus says to them, you are of this world. Now, the apostle Paul, talking about this world, he called it, in Colossians 1, the kingdom of darkness. He said, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. And so you have these two kingdoms. You have the world, 
kingdom of darkness, and you have the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice what Jesus said about himself in John 8, 23. Guess what? He said about believers. He said about us in John 17. In John 17, 15, that great prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus, you remember, he's praying for his disciples, and he said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now notice this. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Notice we're not taken out of the world the moment we are saved as much as we might love for that to take place. Just like Jesus in John 8, we are in the world, but he said we are not of the world. The illustration has been used many times, and for good reason, of a scuba diver. How many of you scuba divers do we have here today? Some of you here do that. Uh, I have never quite worked up the courage to do that myself. But a scuba diver is in the water, but he's not of the the water. He temporarily resides in the water, but he breathes in air. He breathes in a different atmosphere. And in the same way as Christians, we reside in this world, but we are not of this world. This world is not our home. We breathe a different atmosphere. We're just passing through. 2 Corinthians says we are just ambassadors for Christ. That's what we are. And so just like there are these two destinies that every person will face, there are also these two kingdoms to which every person will belong. Every person here, every person you know, according to the Word of God, is part of one kingdom or the other. And it's so important that we know and remember just how different these two kingdoms are. Everything about these two kingdoms is different. For example, our values are different. Our values are different, aren't they? The values of this world are based on the opinions of man, which, are, which say one thing today and something else tomorrow. The values of God's kingdom are based on the unchanging word of God. The way of life that we practice is just different. The world is all about exalting self. The kingdom of God is all about dying to self as you follow Christ. The priorities are different. This world is all about living for the now. The kingdom of God is all about eternity. The outlook is different. This world is focused on what is visible. In the kingdom of God, we're focused on what is invisible. Even love is different when it comes to these two kingdoms. In the world, it's all about you loving yourself. But in the kingdom of God, it's all about us loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, even our enemies. And so you have these two kingdoms and over and over again, at every single point, they are as different as different can be. And yet, Christian brother, Christian sister, how often do we forget this fact? How often 
do we live and act as if we can be part, and I mean truly, deeply part of both kingdoms at the same time. You know, you know I was recently on vacation with my family and we were in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, had a great time. While we were there and while we were camping, I learned a new word in English. I learned new words in Spanish every single day. Learned one right before the service started, actually. But I learned a new word in English. You know what new word I learned? Some of you may already know this word. I learned the word bushwhacker. Now, how many of you know what a bushwhacker is? Raise your hand. How many of you know what a bushwhacker? I'm going to be honest. A lot of you do. I did not know what a bushwhacker was. Well, most of you are like me. Most of you do not know. You say, well, what is a bushwhacker? Well, many years ago in our nation's history, during the Civil War, there were certain men in parts of Tennessee and in parts of North Carolina, and they never took a side. They weren't part of the North or part of the South but they would raid those cities on the border between these warring states. And you know what they would do? Sometimes they would go out wearing Union blue uniforms. And sometimes they would go out and wearing their Confederate gray uniforms. Depended on the occasion and where they were going. Sometimes they pretended to be one and sometimes they pretended to be the other. But guess what? They were always pretending. They were always pretending. Likewise, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you there are no bushwhackers in the kingdom of God. You are part of one kingdom or the other. And you can't pretend to have one foot in and one foot out. And there is no sitting on the fence. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 12, He who is not with me is against me. His words, not mine. We are either part of his kingdom or we are not. We are following him or we are not. And so we see that there are two kingdoms to which every person will belong, one or the other the difference is night and day could not be more clear. One final thing I want you to notice. There are two ways in which every person will respond. Not only two destinies and two kingdoms, but we see in these last few verses of our text two ways in which every person will respond. Now look at verse 25. Then they said to him, who are you? Let me pause right there. This question that they asked Jesus would be an excellent question if it came from a pure heart. I really believe that if a person will sincerely come before God and say, I don't know you, but I want to know you, and I've already decided I am willing to seek you and follow you, I believe God will respond. Jesus said in Matthew 7, seek and you will find. The problem is these Pharisees were not asking that question from a pure heart because notice how Jesus answers them. And Jesus said to them, 
just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. Does it sound like maybe Jesus is a little bit frustrated at this point? He's the sinless son of God. He's still got frustrated. Who am I? You're asking me who I am. He says, I am what I have been telling you from the beginning over and over again. And just think about all of the different things Jesus has said about himself, his identity, who he is, just in these last few chapters of John, which had taken place over the last few months when we get to John chapter 8, speaking to these same Pharisees, Jesus already said to them that he came down from heaven. He already said over and over again that God was his father. They complained because they knew he was making himself equal with God. He already said to them that one day he will raise every man, woman, boy, and girl, and one day he will judge every person. He already said to them, I am the bread of life. He already said to them, I am the light of the world. He already said all of these things about himself again and again and again. And yet they ask him, who are you? And you know what Jesus was doing while he was saying all of these things about himself? He was healing the sick, performing miracles, doing what only the Son of God could do. During all this time, as he's saying all of these things, he healed the nobleman's son by simply saying the word. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. During this time, as he's saying all of these things, Jesus fed the 5,000. He did all of these things. What is he doing? He's backing up everything that he said with his actions, with his miracles, and with his life. How dare they ask him, who are you? You see, their problem is not that they did not know who Jesus is. Their problem is not that they had all of these questions, but Jesus had failed to answer them. No, their problem was that they simply did not believe God and their unbelief was reflected in the way they treated Jesus. Their unbelief was reflected in their rejection of Jesus. And this is why Jesus said in verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Notice this. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. They did not understand because they were blind. They were blind due to their unbelief of what they did understand. And a person who's blind simply cannot see. A person who's completely blind, they can't see the light no matter how close the light is to them. They cannot see the light no matter how brightly that light is shining before them. They just cannot See it. And so here is Jesus, the light of the world. He's standing right before them. And he said, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. He could have judged them in that moment. He would have been justified in doing so. But that's not what Jesus did. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you 
lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Jesus said, you want to know who I am? I've told you again and again, but here's how you're going to know, and here's how you're going to really know. Jesus said, here's how you're going to know that I do not act on my own, and everything I say that makes you so mad, I'm just repeating what the Father already said, and He really is with me, and I do please Him. Here's how you're going to know all of that. He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's how you're going to know. When you lift up the Son of Man... We saw this language back in chapter 3. Remember when Jesus, Jesus said, just as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, that was a while ago that we were in chapter 3. So let me just remind you, that phrase, lifted up, was a reference to crucifixion. It was just a phrase that they used because when a person was crucified, they were literally lifted up off the ground and they were nailed to the cross they hung in the air that's what it meant to be lifted up and I want you to think about what Jesus is saying he's saying hey whatever questions you have about my identity they'll all be settled one day when I am lifted up on the cross think about some of the things that happened while Jesus was hanging on the cross for those six hours. And what happened after he died? As Jesus is on the cross, the earth was darkened. He cried out and breathed his last. The veil in the temple was torn in two. There was an earthquake. The Bible says that many of the dead rose and began to testify. And for many of these Pharisees that Jesus is talking to in John chapter 8, this was that moment when they finally got it. This is when they realized that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. And folks, it is still true today. It is the cross of Christ. It's the cross along with that empty tomb that causes Jesus to stand out from everybody else, every other philosopher and every other prophet and every other teacher and every other religion. Because if Jesus really did die on the cross... As we say and as we believe and as we know that he did. And if he really died and he rose again on the third day, as we say and believe that he did, that means he is everything he claimed to be. That means he is Savior. He is Lord. He is the I Am. And we can trust him completely. And therefore, there are only two responses. You can either accept him or you can reject him. You can follow him or you can shun him. But let me tell you what you cannot do. You cannot play this game where you pick and choose which of his claims you believe to be true and which to be false, like some kind of child sitting at a table deciding which vegetables they are going to eat. Nor can you respond by saying that Jesus was just a good teacher or just a good moral example. The cross and the empty tomb do not leave that as an option for us. Because he died and because he rose again, you cannot accept him partially. But you must surrender to him completely. It appears that some in the crowd did exactly that. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these words, many 
believed in him. Some heard his words and rejected him, and Jesus warned and said, you will die in your sins. But praise the Lord, there were others who heard him, they believed, they placed their faith in him. Because listen to me carefully, it's not enough to simply know about a cure. A person must receive that cure for it to be effective for them. You may know the story of Dr. Gordon Alls, who was that chemist who pioneered the use of insulin as a treatment for diabetes. Did you know, however, that in one of the most ironic twists of fate, in 1963, that same chemist, Dr. Gordon Alls, died of diabetes and insulin could have saved his life if he had taken it. And after he died, a lot of his colleagues, they began to speculate, which really that's all you can do, but they began to speculate why this happened. And many of them said one of two things must be true. Either Dr. Gordon Alls did not know that he had the disease which he had studied his entire life, or for some reason, he did not take the treatment himself that he had prescribed to others over and over and over again. Well, folks, in the same way, Jesus is God's cure for the problem of sin and death. He is God's solution. But it's not enough just to know about this cure. You must receive him as Savior and Lord of your life today. Two destinies. Which is yours? Two kingdoms. To which do you belong? Two responses. What will your response be? Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, we thank you for your word and for all that we have read and learned today. We thank you even for the warnings that are included in your word because we know that they are for our good. Father, we've seen in your word this morning that according to Jesus, some will die in their sins but others we know will die in the Lord. And there are some who belong to this world. They are of this world. They are from, from below. And then there are those who are not of this world, who are saved by grace through faith, who are part of the kingdom of God. And it all comes back to how we respond to Jesus, whether we accept him or whether we reject him, whether we believe that he really is who he claimed to be, whether we trust him, and so, Father, I pray this morning if there are those who have never come to that point of placing their faith in Christ alone, God, I pray that even now they would do exactly that. That this really would be their day of salvation. And that today their destiny would change. And their kingdom citizenship would change. And today they would follow Jesus. 
And so convict hearts, speak to hearts, and just reveal that to anyone here who perhaps needs to take that step of faith and say, today I'm placing my faith in Christ. Today I will follow Jesus as Lord of my life. Father, would you help all of us here today to know how to respond to what we've read and what we've heard so that we would take it with us, not just be hearers, but doers of your word as well. And we'll be sure and give you all the praise and glory.